Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're about to hear your word, listen to your word, speak your word. And that's sobering to me. And I just pray right now that your spirit would come upon us, that we would be able to speak with clarity, that we would be able to listen with discernment so that your name would be glorified because of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, Roger and Dodger were watching the late news at 11 o'clock one evening after a long day, and they were sitting in the living room and um, as buddies, and they uh, saw on the newscast a man that was on a high building on the ledge, and he was about to jump. Pretty sad scene. There was crowds gathering below. The police had arrived. The fire department had arrived. Crowds were shouting encouragement and discouragement. And as the story unfolded, Roger, for some reason, leaned over to Dodger and says, I'll bet he jumps. And Dodger says, oh, no, I don't think he's going to jump. And I don't know what was on their minds, but they made a wager about whether a man would jump or not. And Roger bet Dodger that uh, the man would jump from the ledge of the high building. And the story continued. It was unbroken. They didn't break for commercial. The the newscaster was on the scene. And unfortunately, finally, at the end, the man jumped. It was pretty sad. And Roger, then feeling a little bit guilty, turned to Dodger and said, Oh, Dodger, I... I kind of took advantage of you. I saw this on the 6 o'clock news, and I knew that he jumped. And Dodger said, I know, I saw the 6 o'clock news, but I didn't think he'd jump again. (laughs) It's interesting how people respond to something that they already know the end to. I mean, some people take advantage of it. Some people even deny the truth that it actually happened. Kind of funny, although sometimes I wonder. I know that some of you during the NCAA basketball tournament watched some really exciting games. You didn't know the outcome. Two-point victories, two-point losses, last-minute shots. We were on the edge of our chair. Our heart was pounding, stuffing food into our mouth. Our emotions were rising. What was this happen? Would our team win? Would our team lose? (laughs) We didn't know the outcome, and so our reaction was pretty tense. But then I know some of you record those events, record those games, and you watch him over and over again. You even watch him the second time and the third time, and you already know the outcome, and you already know the end. And I would venture to say this morning that if you already know the outcome and already know the end, you're not going to watch it the same way you did the first time. Your heart's not going to pound as much. You're not going to have as much anxiety. You may not even deny the truth like Dodger did. You might try and hope, but you can't change the outcome. I think it's interesting to me that what we already know the outcome, when we're watching it again, it sometimes our reaction should be different. Certainly we wouldn't deny the truth or ignore it like Dodger did. Well, I have the privilege today to expand on what uh, Mark spoke on a couple of weeks ago on Easter Sunday when he used the biblical story of Thomas to bring to us the truth of the resurrection. Thomas had to grapple with the fact of the empty tomb and what everybody had been saying to him. He wasn't believing, but he, he had to grapple with the fact that the tomb was empty and all of his friends were telling him that they'd seen Jesus. Not only did Thomas in that first generation uh, 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 
in the first century had to grapple with the, with the truth of the empty tomb, so did every generation thereafter had to grapple with the truth of the empty tomb. And every theory to try and dispel or discount that truth has, been, has failed. Whether it was the fabrication theory, the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, the hallucination theory, the wild animal theory, they went to the wrong tomb theory. All those theories have failed. The tomb was empty. And I guess I'd suggest to you this morning that the best solution and the best answer to the fact that the tomb was empty is he rose again. Amen? He rose again. Now, I'm not going to spend time this morning continuing the discussion of that truth that he's, that he's, that he's risen. But I want to give a different thought and extend that thought. Because he is risen, because he was resurrected, then what? Is it important? Okay, he's risen. Is that important? Oh, it's important. If he hasn't risen, we're still in our sins. Our faith would be vain. The scriptures tell false stories. The apostles lied. And if he's not risen, you know what? Choose any religion you want. It won't matter. Choose any religion, they'll all be the same. You can choose the moral code you like. If you don't like this one, choose this one. If this religion won't let you do this and this one will, choose this one. It won't matter. Any religion will do if he has not been resurrected. And we're wasting our time coming here week by week. You could be out for breakfast. But he has risen. And I want to focus on one particular outcome of that resurrection today. And it's this, because he rose, because he lives, we also will be resurrected. We also will live. Did you know that? I think a lot of you did. Because he lives, because he was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. We too will live. Everyone in this room, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, everyone in this room will be resurrected. That, of course, unless Jesus comes and takes us to be with him before we die, then we'll be translated. But everyone in this room will either be resurrected or translated. That's the end. That's like the end of the newscast. That's like the end of the game. We know the end. We're going to be resurrected. I want to talk about three things today. I want to give you some scriptural uh, evidence of the fact that, he, that we will be resurrected. Secondly, I want to give a few thoughts about, okay, if we're going to be resurrected, should this affect the way we live? Does this have any bearing on it? Knowing the end, knowing what the end is going to be, does it change the way I view life now and the way I experience life now? And thirdly, I'd like to have some, give you some thoughts as to about how and when this resurrection will take place. Well, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say about that one. All right. That's where we're going to go, those three things. First, some scriptural evidence that we're going to be resurrected. First, from the Old Testament. Job 19, 25, and 26. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Daniel 12, 13. Before you go, but as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live, 
their corpses rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for the dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. All Old Testament, it's interesting, Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected. In the New Testament, from John chapter 6, there's three verses in here. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 11, 25 and 26, was John is, uh, when um, John is speaking to Martha when he arrived on the scene after Lazarus had died. And Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, all these verses talk about the resurrection of the believers. It's known in the scripture as the first resurrection. But I want you to know there's a second resurrection. Here's a couple of verses in Revelation that I'm sure we'll get to in the next, you know, in the coming months. Revelation chapter 20, 13 to 15. This is talking about the second resurrection, those who have got, come to the point of belief in the resurrection of Christ and trusted him as their Savior. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And everyone's name is not written in the book of life. He was thrown in the lake of fire. Mark mentioned this and spoke about this last week. Let's talk a little bit about the first resurrection, which I'm going to assume that most of you will be in, participate in, and, and, and be resurrected at his appearance. The Corinthians had some knowledge of this. I'm taking a lot of this from the first Corinthians chapter 15. I'm not going to go verse by verse. There's not enough time to do all 58 verses, but if you want to refer to these in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, you can use the Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take one for your use, but we'll be referring from those, to those verses. The Corinthians had some knowledge of this resurrection. They had believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They'd been taught that by Paul. But, but they, they really couldn't quite grasp and grapple with the idea that they, too would be re- they could, that they too would be resurrected. They could understand and believe that Jesus was resurrected, but they didn't think they would be resurrected. And this came from the Greek philosophies and religions that they just come from. Uh, there was a predominant uh, grappling with what is, happens to one after life, after death. Just like in our culture, people grapple with the idea and have erroneous ideas as to what's going to take place after we die. The basic tenet of the philosophy of that particular time was a philosophy known as dualism. It's traced back to Plato. It basically said that everything is spiritual. Everything that's spiritual is intrinsically good. Everything that's physical is intrinsically evil. So any thought of hanging on to that which is physical in the afterlife was repugnant. The body, the corpse, the tomb was something that I wanted to get away from. I'm shackled to in my life. So to think that there would be a resurrected body in the culture of the Greek philosophies and religions would be just totally way out. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but they just didn't think that the idea of the resurrection of the body was not... They, they couldn't grasp that. You even saw this in, when Paul was speaking to the Greeks at, in Athens on Mars Hill. When he brought up the resurrection of, of, of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, they said, 
Oh, we'll, we'll hear this from you again later. They sneered at him. And the translation today would be, yeah, later, about the resurrection from the dead. It's possible even some of the Jewish members of the Corinthian church had doubts about the resurrection of the body because they were influenced by the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection as opposed to the Pharisees who did. So Paul addresses these issues. He's addressing a number of issues in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's addressing, he reviews for them the gospel, and he gives them this bit of logic that's found in verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read it for you. It'll be on the screen. I love the way he goes back and forth with his logic. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if the fact the dead are not raised. I bet you they had to read that two times when they heard it. For the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and we have hoped in Christ in this life only we are men to be most pitied. I like the way he, he goes back with that, with that logic. Basically, he's saying you can't have one without the other. If the dead are not raised and Jesus is not raised, if Jesus is raised, then we're going to be raised. I'll let that just speak for itself. But then he knows the next question that the Corinthians have on their mind is, well, what do you mean we're going to be raised? What kind of a body are we going to have when we're raised from the dead? What kind of a body are we going to have? And so Paul picks it up in verses 35, and he gives a pretty long dissertation about what kind of body. He says, look at guys. Well, I'm paraphrasing. He says, look at. He says, you, under, you, know, you know this even from nature. The seed that you put in the ground that dies comes back in a different form. You already know that. So our, our, our body, which is corruptible, is going to be put in the ground, but it's going to come forth differently. It's going to become incorruptible. And then he summarizes what our body is going to be like in, in, in the verses that follow. And, he, and just summarizing for you, it says, um, we're going to have a body that's incorruptible in verse 42. One that's glorified in verse 43. A body of resurrection power in verse 43. A body that's spiritual in verses 44 to 46. One that's heavenly in 47 through 49. One that's immortal in verse 53. You see, it's not going to just be a spirit. It's going to be one that can eat like Jesus ate when he was resurrected. Isn't that neat? I'm going to be able to eat in my resurrected body not to sustain life, but just to enjoy food. I'm going to have a body that has no more aches and pains. Wow, that gives me a smile. You ought to be smiling. Well, this is just briefly some evidences of the fact and the truth <clears throat> that we are going to be resurrected because he lives and was resurrected. We will be resurrected and live. But secondly, how does this believing, how does believing this truth affect my life? Do I really believe that what I believe is really real? Does knowing the end like the newscast or a sporting event or whatever it is, knowing the end of what's going to come in my life make any difference as to how I live it? It should. Let me give you a couple of examples. If one remains an unbeliever, if one has reached a point 
or not reached the point where they can really trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ <clears throat> as being the adequate and only substitution for the death of sin, because the penalty for sin is death and it must be paid, they probably haven't come to the point where then they would realize and believe that Jesus was resurrected, that they would be resurrected. They may not even be worrying about it. It may not affect their lives at all. But what if there's an unbeliever who says, I want to seek the truth. I want to know the truth. I want to know what this resurrection means. I want to know what comes to be after life. I want to know what happens to my sin. How will I be accepted? It seems to me knowing the end result ought to increase and intensify their diligence in seeking the truth. Now, some of you today may be in that category. Oh, I'm just, I just so happy that, that for your seeking and for your diligence and your wondering and your asking questions and using your mind in seeking. I just pray that you will seek and find the truth because eternity is at stake. In fact, let me pray for you right now if you're an unbeliever and you're seeking the truth. Father, it's hard to understand that there's a second resurrection which is certainly not the one we want to be part of, which ends us up into the lake of fire. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that they're just honestly, diligently seeking and wanting to know and understand the truth, I pray in Jesus' name that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would understand the truth, that they would be prompted and they would respond by faith to the fact that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is an adequate, complete substitution for the penalty that must be paid. Reveal to them truth, I pray, Father, that they may be participants in the first resurrection. Amen. If you're a believer, and maybe most of you fall in that category right now, it means that your voyage on earth now should be different because you know what's going to come at the end. I have a few implications that I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks. What difference does it make to me that I'm going to be resurrected at the end? And I battled whether I put this on the screen as I will or we will or you will. <laughs> I decided to put it in first person. And then you can take it as something for you or you can add to it or subtract from it, whatever. But because he lives, I will be resurrected and live. And because I will live, I will appear before Christ. I will appear in a resurrected body before Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. This is written to believers, knowing that I'm going to be resurrected. I'm secure for eternity, I understand that, but my works are going to be judged and I'm going to be recompensed. Why? For the second reason, I will have a role in the coming kingdom where he is going to reign over this world for a thousand years. I'm going to have a role in that kingdom, I hope. 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 13 to 15 talks about building on the foundation of Christ. It says, each man's work will be evident, for the day will show it because it's to be revealed by fire, our works. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, meaning loss of reward, not loss of salvation. But he himself will be saved, so as through fire. In Revelation, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. 
over these, second death has no power, and they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, here's what this does for me. I'm using the first person. Knowing that I'm going to be resurrected, appear before Christ, hopefully be recompensed for the deeds that I've done in my body. When I think about that, that affects my behavior, my attitudes, my goals, my responses, my anticipations. You see, this affects a lot of things. Let me give you a couple examples. Knowing that I'm going to appear before Christ in a resurrected body to be possibly recompensed for my deeds, it affects my behavior. I know there's a reward for those who gain victory over the old man and the old sin nature. You know, when I'm tempted, and I'm tempted to spend time, to spend money, to watch, to read, to take part in, to be involved in that which is sinful, or if not simple, certainly not helpful for my moral and spiritual growth, I think about this. Do I want this to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? And it changes my behavior. Is it wrong for me to want the rewards to be compensated, to be participant in the kingdom? I don't know, but I want them. Because he lives and because I'm going to be resurrected and live, it affects my goals and my direction. Paul told the Philippians that their citizenship was in heaven. And I want to, as a citizen of heaven, I want to participate in the coming kingdom and my goals and what I do now and how I use my time and how I use my money reflect my citizenship. I have to think because I know the end and I have to make different choices. At my stage in life right now, the culture, Christian and non-Christian culture, tells me, Ron, relax, retire, rest. You've worked all your life. You're going to go to heaven. We're all going to be the same. Relax. That's false teaching. Yes, in Christ we're going to go to heaven. But we're not all going to be the same in the kingdom. We're going to have roles to play based upon how we were recompensed when we, when we appeared before the judgment seat of Christ. So I come to this point. Is my time my own? Is it just for me? Is my money just for me? No, it's to build treasure in heaven. By the way, I have plenty of time to relax, sometimes too much. Some of you are inspirations to me. I know you. I know how you live. <clears throat> Some of you have hardly any money at all. But you keep on keeping on because you have eternity at stake. <clears throat> I didn't get like this when I practiced. <laughs> I get monthly magazines called Voice of the Martyrs about my bro brothers and sisters around the world who are tortured, who are beaten, who are killed, that if even they're found with a Bible or even found knowing that they have a Bible or reading a Bible, they're killed. It hasn't changed their goals because they know they have eternity at stake and they're going to be resurrected and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
You know, because he lives and because I'm going to be resurrected and appear before Christ, it affects my attitude and my responses to my circumstances and experiences. You know, I'm okay when things are going well, aren't you? When things are going well, it's fine. I have a great attitude. I have a great response to life. But you know, when things aren't going so well, and they don't go well very well in this fallen world, I don't know how I always respond. I have to trust that you guys will pray, not just for me, but I get my encouragement in, from prayers. That I hope that I will understand that what happens to me is preparation for what's coming in the kingdom for me to do. Or even if, or I may not even understand it, but I know that sometime I will understand it. I want to show you something right now, a video that was produced by Adam Kring at the church where he now is. It's received national acclaim. It's a true story. And I want to use this as an example of what I would like my attitude to be according to my circumstances. Take a look at this. That's an eternal perspective, isn't it? Just so you know, he's no longer able to eat uh, intravenously or by food, and he's on hospice care right now. But my desire is to be able to, res <clears throat> to respond to circumstances like Zach because I'm going to be resurrected, and I know the end. I think also because he is resurrected and I will be resurrected, this affects my anticipations. You know, I know that I'll see those who have gone behind before me, and I have hope that when in God's perfect timing, he may take me like he's taking Zach, they'll take care of those that, are left, that, I've, that I've left behind and those that have been counting on me to take care of them because it's his perfect timing. Because he lives and because he's been resurrected and I will be resurrected, it affects my relationships. And I've even told you from this pulpit some of the struggles I've had with some relationships in the past. And I know that strained relationships with brothers and sisters in the Lord or with my spouse or with whomever do happen in this fallen world, but I do know that the effort to fix and restore strained relationships in humility is far superior to claiming the right to vengeance, to harbor bitterness, and to reject those who are my brothers and sisters. How am I maintaining an attitude of bitterness and desire for vengeance prepare me to appear before Jesus when I'm in my resurrected body? I'm realizing more and more as I think on these things that Life is sure a whole lot more than just about me and about my feelings. Well, I could go on, couldn't I? We could go on with more of these implications, couldn't we? I hope some of them have come to your mind. I reflect on these not to make me feel guilty or to make anybody feel guilty, because I know in this fallen state I'll never achieve even what I just put on the screen in terms of my behavior, my attitudes, my anticipations, and my responses, and, and so on. But I put them up there to remind me of my citizenship in heaven, my new body, and my future resurrection. I know that I'm going to fall short in these areas, but I don't get down on myself because I'm thankful that I'm on a journey, and then day by day and month by month and year by year, I can continue to be conformed to the image of Christ and be ready when I appear before him. Amen? Isn't that great? That's worth celebrating. Well, thirdly, when and how is this going to take place? Well, Paul answered 
this question to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, here's what he told the Thessalonians. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall, so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm not sure if that made the screen, but you heard it. In 1 Corinthians, he said this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So how is this going to happen? Well, one day Jesus is going to come out of heaven of heavens and come into the atmospheric heaven, and then he's going to give a shout, like a military commander, he's going to give a shout for the resurrection and the translation process to begin. Then the, his archangel Michael, who is going to be given a role to send into motion what the commander has shouted, will repeat the shout. Then a trumpet's going to sound. And Paul says it's the last trump. Then the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive are going to be caught up in the air with them. And every believer, without exception, will be removed from the earth and reunited with Jesus in heaven. That's how, that's how it's going to happen. Wow. Wouldn't that be neat? What's this last trump? What does that mean? It's going to happen at the last trump. That's the when. I strongly believe that this last trump is a reference that the first Corinthians would have understood because Paul says the last trump. He's not writing them something they don't know about. So I don't think it can refer to the seventh trumpet in Revelation that we just finished last Sunday was the fifth trumpet, right? And, and when Mark preaches again, it's going to be on the sixth trumpet. But it's the last trump. It has to be something other than the seven trumpets because Revelation hadn't even been written. Jerusalem hadn't even fallen. John hadn't even been taken into exile. He hadn't even started writing. He didn't even know he was going to write. I think it's in reference to the Feast of Trumpets, which the Jewish people call today Rosh Hashanah. There are seven primary feasts in the Old Testament. They all have to do with Israel. But in every one of those feasts, there's some messianic implication. And I want to just briefly review them to see if you can see where I'm going with this. The first four feasts were in the spring of the year, in the uh, first month of the Jewish calendar. There was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. The first one, let me, let me show you the Messianic implication of it. This was the day, you remember, that they celebrated the Passover when they slayed the lamb and put it on the doorpost to remember the event when they escaped slavery from Egypt. On the very day that the Jewish nation was remembering this event of slaying the lamb and applying its blood on the doorpost to avoid the judgment of the angel of death, on that very day, Jesus went to the cross where he was slain, shed his blood, and became our Passover lamb. On the very day. The next feast was the, was, the, was the day after Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Unleavened is a symbol of sin in the Bible. No leaven was to be eaten or even found within the borders of the nation on this day. On the very day that the Jewish nation removed from their presence leaven, the symbol of sin, on that very day, Jesus' sinless sacrifice made provision for the removal and the purging of the sins of all. 
The next feast was the Feast of First Fruits, which happened on the first day after the first Sabbath after Passover, Sunday morning. The first fruits, when they brought in the beginning of their harvest, and first fruits always means there's more of the same to come. On the very day that the Jewish nation was celebrating and bringing in the first fruits of their spring crop, symbolizing a future fulfillment when they would be the first fruits in their land or the first fruits in their kingdom, on that very day, Jesus was resurrected and became the first fruits of all those who were going to be resurrected in the future. Amazing. The fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks plus one day after Passover, 50 days after Passover. On the very day that the Jewish nation celebrated the fruits of their spring harvest and brought their first fruits of the summer crop, and they rejoiced as a nation living in the land where God chose to have his name dwell. On that very day, the day of Pentecost, the disciples were all gathered in one place, and the birth of the church took place. The church, a new living organism where God would choose to have his name dwell in the interim between the Jewish national rejection of Christ and their future acceptance of him as king. This is absolutely amazing to me. This is new connections for me in the last couple of weeks. The Passover, the unleavened bread all matching Christ's death, the first fruits, his resurrection, Pentecost, the birth of the church. Messianic implications to those first four feasts, which were for Israel and will have future implications for the nation of Israel. Interesting to me that they're in chronological order of the feast. It actually happened with Jesus in his first advent. Now, there was a pause of about five months before there were three more fall feasts. I think the next three feasts associate with the second advent of Jesus, and the messianic implications are still future. Is there any possible meaning because there's a five-month delay? I don't know. Something that represents the church age. I don't know, but there's a five-month delay. But does it make sense? Is it worthy thinking about? Is there any merit to thinking that there may be some messianic event that corresponds to these next three? I think so. Let me tell you what, where I am with this. The next feast, which is the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month, which is in the fall of September for us, is the Feast of Trumpets, known as Rosh Hashanah. The shofar is sounded that calls Israel together. Just as the last trump, representing the future regathering of Israel as a nation in belief. Paul says, just like that last trump, when that last trump is sounding, there'll be a gathering of believers whose dead will, be, will rise first and those who are alive will be caught up with them to meet the, where, meet the Lord in the air. We call it the rapture, but it's the resurrection that we've been talking about. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He makes this connection. We had it on the screen earlier. After this Feast of Trumpets comes the Feast of Atonement where there were activities and festivities to remove sin from their midst. Just like the Feast of Activities representing the removal of sin from the nation, the tribulation will be the event in the future that prompts the nation's repentance and removal of the sin from Israel. I think there's a messianic implication there. And the last feast is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This all happens within two weeks that they have these feasts. The feast was to commemorate their 40 years of wandering 
they built booths and little tabernacles from branches to live in to celebrate their, that they no longer wandered. Just like living in the booths made from branches were to commemorate Israel's 40, 40 years of wandering, the future kingdom, the millennial of Christ, will end all the years of wandering for Israel. Christ will be finally be king, not only of the Jews, but of the whole world. And this feast of tabernacles and booths will be celebrated in the millennial kingdom and all nations must participate in it. I think it's interesting that these next three feasts have to do with the second advent. I'm strongly suggesting to you that today that our resurrection corresponds with the Feast of Trumpets. The, representing the regathering of Israel, representing the gathering of the believers in resurrection. Do you know that there are some Bible scholars and some Bible teachers that say that this rapture, this resurrection will take place during the Feast of Trumpets just like it took place in the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. I'm not in that camp yet. This is new learning for me. I, I'm not, I can't say this morning it's going to happen during Rosh Hashanah like it happened during the other four feasts. I don't know. I can see where they get their evidence from, though, can't you? It's interesting that the time these feasts of the first four were chronological, I'd like to suggest to you that the last three are chronological. The resurrection, the tribulation, the kingdom. Well, whenever it happens, think about it, whenever it happens, whenever it takes place, that's when we will be at the end of the story, the end of the newscast, the end of the sporting event. I personally believe that this is eminent and can happen at any time, and it affects the way I live. I'd like to close this message by celebrating with you the last trump. If we're a believer, at the sound of the last trump, whenever that sounded, we will be resurrected. And I want us to have a visual reminder today of that last trump, because he lives and we will live. We're going to simulate this, and then we're going to respond to it. I want you to hear what the, the, the trumpet sounds of the shofar are. If you have little children that are sleeping right now or something, you might want to wake them up or take them out before we're finished. All right, there, there are three sounds in the, in, in, in the last trump. The first sound is, was called the tekia. It was like a three or four second sound. You can hear the sound of the tekia played on the ram's horn, the shofar. That's not the last trump. The second sound was called the shavarim. Three shorter sounds. Sounds like this. The third sound was the teruah. And it was a series of short staccato sounds. It sounds like this. I want you to hear what this sounds together in one, in one cycle. And that's not yet the last trump. In the celebrations, these sounds in various combinations, not necessarily in the order that we heard them just now, varying combinations. I've looked all over the internet to find the right one. There's no right one. But there's 99 sounds by the shofar at this particular point. And after the 99 sounds, 
There's the pause, and then the last trump, which is a long, extended blow of the shofar as long as the blower can hold his breath. Now here's what I want us to do. We're going we're to go through a couple cycles of this in a minute, and then we're going to sound the last trump. And at the last trump, this is going to be a visual reminder to all of you of what we hopefully learned this morning, or something that the Spirit of God has prompted you to remember. And when the last trump sounds, we're going to stand and shout. You're saying, oh no. Uh, <laughs> not me. I'm not going to shout. Yes, we are. We're going to shout for 10 seconds as long as that shofar sounds. Now, you may want some, need some words. This front group right here, and I don't care where you divide yourself, you can shout something like this. If you can't think of a hallelujah, I'm going to be resurrected. Can you do that? All right. Those of you in the back, you can say something like about glory to, be, glory to God, I'm going to be resurrected. Okay? Can you, can you guys, is that too hard? All right. Those of you in the balcony and back here, you can say something about the victory is already won. I'm going to be resurrected. The victory, can you say that? Anybody? Hello? Right, okay, good. And those of you up here in the front, you can say, uh, I'm coming home, Lord. I'm being resurrected. Now, if you don't like your assignment, pick, pick somebody else's assignment. <laughs> if you don't like your assignment, pick somebody else's assignment. But you can't just say this once. You're going to have to repeat it, or you can add some words to it. something. Oh, the victory is already won. Thank you, God. I believe I'm going to be resurrected. I can't wait. You know, keep adding to it as loud as you possibly can. Now, first of all, let's just do this softly. I want to make sure everybody's got their assignment right. No repeating. No repeating. Not whisper, just normal voice. When I, when I bring my hand down, I want to hear you say something. If you're an unbeliever, just say something. I don't believe this, but say it out. <laughs> but, but, but say it out loud. It's okay. I don't believe this. Help me understand. All right. Let's just try it in normal voices. One. Okay, stop. Wonderful. Now, we're going to go through two cycles, and then there's going to be a pause. I'll raise my hand, and then bring it down. The last trumpet will sound. You will stand up and shout what you just practiced. Is that clear? All right. Are you ready? All right, and now the last trump is about to sound. Are you ready? Sound it. All right, let's go. You are resurrecting me. I can't believe it. Thank you, Father. I just went. Hey, man, he's coming. I'm going to be resurrected. A new my life. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on 
perishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, and they will come about saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. The last trump is coming. God bless you.